to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The flood is probably the most hotly contested biblical topic. It is the subject of much criticism and ridicule. And living in this age of skepticism that we're living in, we have to, I think, approach these subjects with that awareness. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Genesis. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Genesis chapters 7 through 9 in a message titled, The Flood. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Genesis chapter 7. In the closing verses of the sixth chapter, verses 14 through 22, God instructed Noah to build an ark through which he, his family, and two of each kind of animal would be preserved through the flood. Chapter 7 and 8 give to us the account of the flood. And I'd like to read to you just some selected verses from chapters 7 and 8 rather than reading the entire chapters together. Just some selected verses to get the gist of the things that transpire during the flood. Then we'll come back and look more specifically at some, some issues that I think are important today. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Now down in verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 18, the waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth. And all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. And all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land Died. Now, chapter 8, verse 1. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing 
and all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. Verse 13, And it came to pass in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Now, verses 20 through 22, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal, and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So just a, a brief overview. There's a few other details. If you want to read through every verse, you, you might pick up a couple of other things. But just wanting to give a, a general picture of the flood. Now, next to the subject of creation, the flood is probably the most hotly contested biblical topic. It is the subject of much criticism and ridicule. And living in this age of skepticism that we're living in, we have to, I think, approach these subjects with that awareness that there is a tremendous attack against the veracity of the Word of God. And so in, in these days, I don't think it's, it's simply enough to just, you know, read the story and, you know, make a few comments here and there. I think we have to, when it comes to th- these things, I think we have to put forth a bit of a defense of the faith. And so that's what I wanted to do as we look at the subject of the flood. I want to begin by answering, first of all, the objection of the critics, and then secondly, the objection of the skeptics. So, first objection. The critics would say there is no evidence for a worldwide flood. There's no, nothing that would indicate, as you look around Uh, The world, as you look at uh, geography, as you look at history, they would say there is no indication whatsoever that a flood of this magnitude ever occurred. But, you know, as is often the case 
those who make those kinds of statements, you have to question whether they've really ever seriously done their homework. Because it's fairly easy to prove them wrong. First of all, there is a tremendous amount of historical evidence for the biblical flood. Virtually every culture has a flood tradition. Every culture has a flood tradition. And in a very high percentage of those traditions, you have a family being saved through the flood in a boat with animals. And you find this all over the planet. You find it in, as I said, virtually every culture, tracing back to you know, ancient cultures, you, you find this tradition there amongst virtually every culture. Secondly, geologically speaking, for those who, I guess, you know, would approach it without a, a presupposition, I think there's quite a bit of evidence geologically. The fossils, as Ken Ham likes to say, the fossils are millions of dead things encased in rock, laid down by water all over the face of the earth. So, of course, the, the critic looks at the fossil record and, you know, tries to, to draw from the, the fossil record some sort of evolutionary theory. But when you consider that, again, as, as I said, quoting Ken Ham, the, the fossils are millions of dead things encased in rock laid down by water all over the face of the earth, that seems to fit really well with what we read about here concerning this great flood. Marine life fossils are found, interestingly, they're found in some of the highest mountain ranges in the world. How do you explain that? Again, I think the flood is a pretty good explanation. Many geologists today have changed their view. Many geologists now believe that the Earth's present topography is best explained not by gradualism, the current processes taking place over millions and millions of years, bringing the earth to what it looks like today with the oceans and the canyons and the rivers and things. That was the view for a long time, that all of this developed gradually over long, long periods of time. But many geologists today reject gradualism and believe that the earth's topography is best explained by sudden catastrophic events like floods. Now, you have to wonder, why don't they just take that extra little step and instead of a multitude of regional floods or local floods, why not just embrace the, the better explanation of a worldwide biblical flood? Well, of course, the problem is that the worldwide biblical flood is connected to the wickedness of man and not many geologists want to go in that direction with it. And so even though they're rejecting gradualism and more and more embracing a catastrophic view, which is what we're reading about here, they, of course, still would not want to go 
as far as to say that there was a flood. So with the historical evidence of every culture having a flood tradition, with the geological evidence for those who can be objective enough to consider it, there's plenty there. Now, in um, James Montgomery Boyce's Genesis commentary, he gives a number of other examples, and I don't want to belabor the point by reading too extensively tonight, but I thought that some of these are so good they're worth hearing. And so he's looking more at the geological types of evidences, and he says in his four points, point number one, he says, scattered throughout the world in various places are large caches of animal bones in what geologists call rubble drift in ociferous fissures. I don't know why they use these kinds of terms. <laughs> so here's the explanation. Ociferous fissures are great rents in the earth. That's much easier to say. Great rents in the earth, such as occurred during earthquakes or other violent disruptions. Such fissures have been found in England, France, southern Spain, Germany, Russia, and other countries. The interesting thing about them is that many are filled with bones. Listen to this. Bones of such animals as elephants, rhinoceroses, hippopotamuses, reindeer, horses, pigs, and oxen. The skeletons are not intact. They have been ripped apart, but the bones are not scattered. They are thrown together in almost unbelievable profusion. It is a final interesting feature of such deposits that they usually occur on isolated hills of considerable height. And then he gives a couple of examples. He, uh, the Rock of Gibraltar, he says, has bone-filled fissures that are 300 feet deep. And then he says, in a northwest corner of Nebraska, there is a hill on which a bone bed was discovered in 1876. It is estimated that the bones of about 9,000 complete animals are buried on this one hill. There are similar examples from the Russian steeps near Odessa, from Brunswick and Stuttgart, Germany, from Malta, and many other places. Uh, one commentator wrote this. He said, a great flood of water is the only reasonable explanation for this strange phenomenon. So that's one thing, the, these fissures. Secondly, he talks about the existence of large inland bodies of water and the remains of such bodies called fossil lakes. And then he says, this is best explained by the deluge. The area of China, now known as the Great Gobi Desert, was once an inland lake of a size comparable to the present Mediterranean. Areas of India, Mongolia, Turkestan, Africa, and Central Asia were once inundated. It is well known that large areas of North America were once covered by seas or inland lakes. Geologists call these Lake Algonquin, which filled the Great Lakes region to a height about 26 feet above the present level of the lakes. Lake Iroquois, which covered much of New York State. Lake Agassiz, 
which covered parts of Minnesota, North Dakota, and the Canadian provinces of Saskatchewan, Man Manitoba, and Ontario, and Lake Bonneville, which filled the valley of Utah's Salt Lake and was about the size of Lake Michigan. Fascinating things. Number three, coal beds and oil fields most likely were produced by the deluge. He said, it is conceivable that much or even all of this could have been created at nearly one time through the burial of large quantities of vegetable and animal matter by flood activity. And then his fourth and final example, he says, the last of these strange facts is the astonishing preservation of thousands upon thousands of mammoth bodies in Siberia. He goes on and he says that they have found preserved not merely bones, but whole animals, bones, skins, tusks, hair, and all, are preserved so thoroughly that the creatures seem lifelike even today. Moreover, a surprising number of mammoth carcasses and skeletons have been discovered in an upright standing position just as they lived. Clearly, they were frozen suddenly and thus preserved nearly intact until now. Experts estimate that as many as 5 million of these creatures may have perished all at one time. What known geologic or atmospheric cause could have overwhelmed them, young and old alike, buried them, and then preserved them until today? The best possible explanation is a worldwide flood followed by a change in climate so drastic that these northern areas, which had been temperate before, now became Arctic and thus preserved these magnificent creatures frozen in the ground. So many, many answers to the critics' objections. And although there's criticism and ridicule, if you take the time to do the research, you find that there's much evidence for the biblical claim of a worldwide flood. Now, another objection is that the animals could not have fit on the ark. And this is one that is quite often brought up. But if you consider the volumetric capacity of the ark, now, the ark was 450 feet long, it was 75 feet in width, and it was 45 feet high. This would give a capacity of about 1,400,000 cubic feet. This is the equivalent of 522 railroad boxcars. How many of you have ever been stuck at a railroad crossing? <laughs> Man, you know, you get stuck there with, you know, 50 cars or something like that, and it just seems like an eternity for that train to pass. Can you imagine 522 railroad boxcars? 522 cars could hold 125,000 sheep. Now, here's an interesting fact. Only 11% of land animals are larger than sheep. So 89% of the animals are the size of sheep or smaller. So when you start looking at it like this, does it seem that great of an impossibility for the animals to fit in the ark? I don't think so. Since Noah took two of each kind, and, and of course he took seven of the, of the clean animals, 
And he didn't need all the varieties within the kind. The total amount of animals on the ark could have been as low as 16,000, and it wouldn't need to be more than 40,000. So when you look at it from that perspective, again, it takes away what seems to be insurmountable obstacles to the animals fitting on the ark. Some would say in opposition to the idea that Noah would not have been able to gather all the animals to the ark because many of them would have been in different parts of the world. That's another idea that's put forth in opposition to the story. But what people don't realize is that before the flood, the dry land was all one mass. So today, of course, we have the continents and the continents are separated by large bodies of water, by oceans. But that wasn't the case, more than likely, prior to the flood. All of the dry land was one large land mass, and the period of time for the completion of the ark was over 100 years. Remember back in the sixth chapter, God said to Noah regarding man, he said his days will be 120 years. And, and people have often wondered, well, just exactly what was God saying there? Was he talking about the, the age of man being uh, reduced from you know, these long, long years, eight, 900 years down to 120? That's a possibility, but more likely what God was doing was pronouncing the time left before the judgment came. So from the time that God commissioned Noah to build the ark, there would be 120 years until the judgment came. So if you consider that the dry land was one large mass and there was over a 100-year period for the animals to be able to migrate there, again, that takes away that obstacle. Many animals, you know, again, of course, well, how could, how could Noah round up all of these animals? Well, you know, many animals have a migration instinct, and there's no reason that God couldn't have moved the animals in that very way. You know, there are animals that, that migrate great distances. Birds, of course, fly thousands and thousands of miles to a specific destination by instinct. It's programmed into them by God. So, so again, you see these these insurmountable obstacles, I, I think, you know, if you just look at it rationally and reasonably, they're fairly easily cleared up. Some have objected, saying Noah couldn't have cared for that many animals for more than a year on the ark. Well, again, we know that many animals go into what we call hibernation. And I think it's highly probable that most of the animals on the ark were put into a state of hibernation during that period of time. And now, let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource. So I want to tell you about this great book that I recently read called The Air We Breathe. And the subtitle is How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality. And the gist of the book is that whether we know it or not, all the things that we're passionate about, like 
progress, equality, freedom, kindness, all of these things are important to us because of Christianity, because of the influence of the gospel on our culture. And people hold to these values passionately, but they don't really even know where they came from. So this book, Glenn Scrivener is the author. He does a superb job in just tracing all of these things right back to where they originated in Jesus and the gospel. So the air we breathe, I highly recommend that you pick it up and read through it. I know that you're going to love it, and I know it will help you in conversation with others as well. Again, this month's resource is a book titled The Air We Breathe, How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality by Glenn Shrivener. You can order the book The Air We Breathe by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book The Air We Breathe by Glenn Shrivener to help you understand some of culture's most cherished values. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Genesis. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.